Welcome, welcome. Good morning. This morning I'm continuing our current series of God at Midnight. As we've been talking about Midnight, we've kind of described it as, as three different, um, maybe concepts and three different things to hold on to. We talked about how Midnight is a point of time, uh, Midnight is a place that you're physically in, or Midnight is a position or a situation that you're in. And kind of the overall theme, the overarching message we want us to know is that God is there with us at midnight, even in the darkness, and, and God is there with us, especially with power. Hopefully, as we've been tracking along in the stories, you've noticed that though midnight comes, it often is still good for God's people. I think that's a good overall message for us to hold on to, because a lot of times we think about darkness and midnight and all the hard things, you know, we think about just the hard things. But in every one of these stories and instances of midnight in Scripture, we find it actually works out for God's people if they're willing to remember those two things, that God is there with us in the darkness and God is there with us in power. Now, this morning, our story is a little bit, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun theological one, right? Um, this is a story that's been debated for many years, and it goes in a lot of different places, but I'm going to try to keep us on the straight and narrow, right? Um, so in Luke chapter 3, the story happens at a point of time. It happens at midnight, right? So that's a pretty easy one to grasp, right? It's a defined time of what happens in this story, and it happens at midnight. There's also a defined place, right? And this isn't just something, you know, ideological in the end. It's a physical place. Ruth and Boaz in chapter 3 meet at the threshing floor. Now, for most of us, we don't know what a threshing floor is, right? And this is where you have to use your faith in God and trust that I know what I'm talking about because I do not, right? I'm not a farmer. This is just what I read in the commentary, and I'm going to try my best, right? But for those of you who know farming and threshing floors, just go with me, right? The rest of you, yes, everything I say is true, right? So, the threshing floor is this large area, right? It was either a rocky area or a stone area that was set and it was defined for harvesting grain. Right? So this is uh, a formula is formulated. It kind of had multiple uses, right? The first use was just a storage, right? So as people would go out all day, work in the field, harvest the crop, bring it back, they would store it in the threshing floor. So that's the first one, right? This is a place for the house for abroad. Now, there were people at the threshing floor who would literally break down the, the harvest, right, to separate the chaff from the kernel because that was the valuable part of the crop. You were doing great, right? That was the valuable part of the crop. So it was a storage place, but it was also this place of, of separation uh, between what was valuable and what was not. The other thing that's actually kind of maybe the most important thing, or maybe the most interesting thing to me anyway, was that the threshing floor was communal. It was not a private place, right? It was like a public um, I would think of it almost like a library, right? Like, who owns the library? In theory, we all do, right? So the, the, the threshing floor was communal. So in some towns, it would be owned by the town, right? Uh, and so everyone would have access to it. But there was also private contractors, right? So there were people who would privately own their own threshing floor. So perhaps you go to the town threshing floor, and there's 20 people ahead of you, but if you pay hey, a small fee, you know, you get to be bumped in the front of the line, and you get to use my threshing floor. So it was also this idea that it was communal. What's fascinating is that throughout Scripture, when the threshing floor shows up, it's always as part of the narrative of Scripture, as part of the narrative of God working among people, there's two kinds of threshing floor that also plays in the story. And it's always this idea of separation, but also revelation. My favorite threshing floor story in 
scripture is, is actually with a guy named Arona, the Jebusite, and David. I preached on this before. But if you're not familiar with the story, what happens is David sins against God, right? He, he takes pride in how much uh, army he has and how big and powerful he's gotten. And, and, and it's one of the few times in scripture that when God comes to David, God is like, not only do you sin against me, but because I know you love me, I'm going to give you a chance to choose your punishment. Which is very, very interesting, right? Like, this story always gives me PTSD flashbacks. There were times in my life where they're like, choose your punishment. And never was it a good choice, right? Like, there was never the choose where, like, you got off, right? It was just, like, bad or worse, right? But in this story, as part of the story, God gives David a choice. And, and David has this, he says a bunch of phenomenal things in the story. But the first one is, like, you know what? I don't want to put my hands in the hands, I don't want to put my fate or the comfy state in the hands of man or the hands of enemies. I'll put our hands in the fate of God. Right? I'd rather trust you to do and, and act and, and whatever punishment is, I'm going to rely on God's mercy. And, 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 but there is suffering, right? Like, sin has consequences of suffering. And, and there's a point where the angel is about to strike Jerusalem, and God halts the angel of death, right? And, and where God halts the angel of death happens to be not just above Jerusalem, but on the threshing floor of a room at a dead site. And you have this wonderful story where David shows up with his whole battalion, his whole army, like his, 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 his royals and all the officials, and he's coming in all his glory. And a room at the dead site, and that's simply because we think of Jerusalem as primarily Israel, that's the capital, that's where they are, right? That's just like how we think of Americans as we're Americans, we're not the natives to this country, right? So the Jebusites were the natives to Jerusalem. They were the people who were literally pushed out of Jerusalem. So you already have a tricky power dynamic when David shows up with all the royals at your threshing floor. So Arona's coming as a native uh, whose country has been taken over, and with the king. With all his powerful people, right? So Arona has this thing where he's like, listen, hey, David, whatever you want, man, like, you just take it. David says, again, something phenomenal, right? And, and for me, this is phenomenal because it's changed not just my, like, how I do worship, but how I do following Jesus, right? Because David says to him, no, 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 no. I will not take the blessing for for free. Why? I will not give my God that which cost me nothing. Right? And so David buys the second floor. Now, why is all that important? Well, it's important for two reasons. One, that area that he buys the second floor and has the, the, the sacrifice and, and, and the, the basic altar and the worship service to God, that becomes the place of the temple that Solomon built. Right? So that's kind of important. And for us as Christians, it's even more important because that place also becomes near two things Abraham and Isaac that happened generations before. And later on, Jesus of Nazareth died on Calvary's tree. Right? So, threshing floors in Scripture are significant because they, they show separation, revelation, and also this unraveling of God's story. So, the point of the story of Ruth and Boaz that happens at midnight. The place is that Boaz's threshing floor. The position, and this is a little bit trickier, because the position of midnight here is the unknown. And that's what I want us to kind of hold this morning, right? Midnight here is the unknown. When we look at the Passover story, midnight was because Pharaoh had a hardened heart and would not relent and let the people go, would not show mercy, even though God and Yahweh were, Yahweh were systematically saying, I'm more powerful than you, I'm more powerful than you, God. Let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And midnight comes on Passover night to Egypt because of hardened heart. We look at Samson, we see that sometimes midnight comes upon us because we do, we take bad steps, consistently bad steps in the, in the wrong direction. And so midnight is actually kind of like the cause of ourselves based on the bad decisions we make. 
And then last week we learned with, with Elisha and Aramaeus that sometimes midnight is just your sleeping, minding your own business, and enemies come to attack you. Right? So there's all these different things at midnight. But in this story, midnight is the unknown. And I kind of want us to rest here by holding on to these two things, right? The first of all is this is an unknown world for us. Right? We read scripture, we open it up, we're like, what does God have to say to me? We do not know about the world of Ruth and Boaz. Right? Most of us this morning didn't know about pressing forth. I read a lot about pressing forth. I still don't think I know anything about pressing forth. I just know what they tell me, and I hope that's true. Right? But we don't know the world of, of pressing forth. We don't know the world of the ancient Near East. We don't know that world really well. And part of that is there's a concept that happens in here that we'll try our best to explain of kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer or leverite marriage, which most of us have no concept of, right? So as we go into this story, I want you to go in with a healthy, I don't necessarily know this world. I don't necessarily know all that's going on. And I think that can free us because a lot of theologians, they get stuck on saying, well, I know exactly what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened in the story. But we do not know this world. And that's good because guess who else is dealing with the unknown in the story? Ruth. She has left Moab. She has left all that she's known. She fights her loyalty to Naomi and Naomi's God, but she does not know what the future holds. She's been widowed. She's a foreigner, and she's dependent on an elder mother-in-law, right? Who, if anything happens to that mother-in-law, she's now what? A, a widow, a foreigner, and a lady by herself. She does not know what's ahead. She's embracing the unknown. That's midnight. Even Naomi, right? In that culture, it was important that you not only have an heir, but like you would have a son. Because that culture, and this is, this is where it's, it's, it's a different world in our maybe a little bit, because I still think we're too picturesque going on society. But there were extra picturesque in the sense that if you didn't have a son, you had no guaranteed protection, provision, or future. And if you were to unpack the story of the home, and you've seen that she's lost her family. So she's older now. So she just knows that there's a famine in this land that I can trust Yahweh. I can trust God who is and was who will reveal himself to me. But I still don't know what the future holds. I just know I don't want to be Moab. So I'm coming back to Israel. But I don't know what the future holds. And even Boaz, right, who in this story definitely represents the power structure, right? He's a man, which in that society is important. He's from a wealthy family, and that society is important. He's actually wealthy and has little. That's important, right? But even Boaz, as you'll see by the frailty that comes out in the text that he has, he does not know what the future holds, right? So we have a world that's unknown to us. We have characters in the story who don't know what the future holds. I think we can relate to that. But I hope what we learn through this story is that we can meet the unknown because of our faith in the known. And we can meet the midnight darkness of not knowing how exactly it's going to work out because we have faith in the known God. The same Yahweh of Ruth, the Boaz of Naomi, the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, the God who revealed himself to us. We can have faith in that God. Amen? Because even when midnight comes, even when midnight is the unknown, we can know that God is there with us, even in that midnight, and especially there in power. Amen? Let's pray God. Father God, we thank you so much for we can come to you, a God who we know. And that doesn't mean we know everything about you. That doesn't even mean that we can conceptualize and hold all that you are. 
Does that mean that if you look at our lives, you reveal yourself to be good, merciful, kind, compassionate, loving, the one who works together for our good, the one who empowers us with the Holy Spirit, the one who sent Jesus to die for us, to live for us, the one who, who gifts our sisters and brothers in the faith, in the church, not just in history, but in our physical place, in our present situation, to help give up faith to their faith. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who desires not only to call us out and consecrate us, but to reveal to us your plans for our lives. And Lord, so help us this morning to not just sit with the unknown future, but to find peace and even rest and home in the fact that we know you who holds the future, in the fact that we know you who holds and true and merciful and kind and compassionate and yes, loving. The God who calls us and sets us apart. Lead us now into the unknown. It's more faith in you. Because the faith of others around us is because you are worthy of all our praise, all our mercy, all our grace, all our love, all our loyalty. God, who we do know, we trust you with the unknown. In your name, amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me now to Luke chapter 3. I'll be reading the entire chapter. And again, we're going to try to explain this as best as we can. But just remember, you do not know this world. All right? So hold on to that. Uh, we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Um, and I'll be reading. Study of verse 1. One day, Luke's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home. Another translation is, I must find a resting place for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight you will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Watch, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and cover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking with in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pot. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, he said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer, or another translation says, kinsman redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, this chastity, this love of God is greater than what he showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, but a rich before. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. If you ran Stephen until the morning, they got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he, in some translations, would say, Then he went back to town. That makes more sense to me. Because he's the one who's reading. But then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother in law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? She told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother in law empty handed. 
Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for that man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So the whole book of Ruth is, is really, really interesting in the sense that, there's, there's a, at least how I read it this week, there's a sense of a toggle back and forth between dark and light, dark and light. The other thing that I think is important for us to understand about Ruth is that it happens in the time of judges, right? So this is in the time of Samson. And as you can remember the last couple of weeks, this isn't really the tightest time of Israel, right? This isn't really a time of them following God. So I think that's important to hold. The other thing that's important to hold is when you get to Matthew chapter 1, you see how closely related some of this is, right? A lot of times we, we, we read these stories, right? We think there's so much separation from the people. For example, Ruth gets to be the great-grandmother of David. Right? Most people might know that, right? But if you also look at the Matthew narrative, you'll realize that Ruth the Moabite has a mother-in-law from Jericho, who is a lady we call Rahab. Right? These stories are more interconnected than sometimes we do it because of either how our Bible is set up or maybe how we're taught, right? We think these people are farther apart than they are. But, but that's also fascinating because you have the Messianic line, the royal line of Israel, the line of the Messiah is going to come, is not going to be put on full, full Israelite. Right? It's going to have Jericho blood and Moabite blood, and I think that's fascinating because apparently our God desires to save the world. Right? So, what's happening in Ruth at this dark and night? It opens with a lot of darkness. Right? The book opens with, with Naomi losing her family. Like, that's how it opens. It's a family in the land, they go to Moab, and while they're in Moab, she loses her husband. We don't know a lot about him. We know his name, right? Elimelech, which means my God is king. So from that, we can infer that he was a pilot here, right? Because in the Old Testament, names kind of reveal character or situation. So we know he was a pious man, right? But he died. Then he has two sons, which I don't know why you would do this to your children, right? If names signify your, your, your state, you know, they named their kids Malon and Kilion. Which to us is like, well, that's the sound Hebrew, right? Well, hmm, Malon means sickly, or one who is sick. And Kilion, you know, it means like wasting away, right? So it's just nothing like you birthing a baby, but here you go, sickly, you know? Here you go, pining away, good luck, wasting away. So needless to say, they didn't, the descriptor, at least the writer of Ruth, they didn't think these people would laugh, and they didn't. But if you're tracking along, Naomi has a family, she goes to another land, and there her two sons marry more by women, and now she loses her husband, right? So there's a sense of protection, provision, that's wrong. Then your whole job is to provide an heir to continue your family life, but then she loses one son and another son. And all that's left, right, is, 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 is now Ruth, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And so Orpah, which as a kid I used to call Oprah, because it was just too close, right? I didn't have dyslexia. He's just like, I wasn't dyslexic. Orpah made remind me of Oprah, right? But she has two daughters left, daughter-in-law, right? And as we're talking along, these are Moabite women. They don't necessarily know the God of Israel. They definitely don't know the land of Israel, the people of Israel. The entire family and, and, and life and structure is in Moab. So, so, so Naomi goes to them and says, listen, you've done your duty, you're married to my family, I'm sorry, my son died on you, your widow, go and, and, and start your life in, in Moab. Like, like, I'm releasing you, like, I'm going to be an old Poor widow, I'm going to go back. I will leave you. The women kind of please, no, we don't want to do it. They say, no, no, please go. Arpa's like, yes, I will go. Right? And she's not faulted for it. Right? You, you put her in that situation where it's like, I'm going to leave everything I know 
and this person who was you know, a provider for me in my future is now dead, and you want me to go to another land? But Ruth says no. Ruth claims to Naomi, and she says one of the most beautiful, uh, I think, lines of, of not just dedication, but 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 but, 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 but friendship and, and peace and faith, right? And in Ruth chapter one, this is what she says, right? After Naomi's like peace, faith, she says what? Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back to me. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and then I will be buried. May the Lord Yahweh deal with me. He has ever so severely that even death separates you from me. I think that's why Ruth made it into Scripture, okay? Like the dedication, we'll talk a little bit about the Moabites so you have more of a framework of who these people were, right? But the dedication of Ruth to say, you know what, I'm going to tie my destiny to you. I mean, I know Israel, I mean, I know your God well, but I see you, I see your faith, and if you believe in that God who's good, I'm going to trust your faith in that God. And maybe that's something we all talk about about in our faith, right? Because sometimes we need people to help us reach God. Sometimes we need people who are a little bit further along who have faith, but we don't have enough faith. And it's not that they're, that they're, that they're better than us, but it is that God can use them to help pull us out. But God can use them to help us dream a little bit better, right? And so Ruth makes this promise. It's like, don't tell me to leave. We're stuck together. Where you go, I will go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And as you can see, I'm covering in the book of Ruth. This wasn't just like verbal talk, right? She exhibited it. She lived it. She fully did it. So you have the dark of Naomi losing her family, but the light of Ruth choosing to stay. But if we go back and forth with dark and light, now we have to some time. So as they go back to Bethlehem, they go back as two widow women, without any protection, provision, without any family. And they go back very destitute and poor. And as Ruth, uh, as Naomi looks at the situation, people are like, hey, you're back. And she's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. And Naomi in the Hebrew means my delight or pleasure, right? He said, no, 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 call me Mara, which means better. So she goes back and she's happy to go home. But when she gets home, she realizes, oh, my goodness, we are poor. We're destitute. We're alone. We have no family. We're widows. We're in this land that we've been gone for so long. What are we going to do? The embrace of midnight or the acceptance of midnight has led her to change her name, not to Naomi, my delight, but Mara, my bitterness. That's the darkness she enters in. But again, we're going to put it down to light. What is the light? By the time you get to chapter 2, you see that Ruth meets Boaz. And that's the center of the book. That's the most important thing about the book is this chapter 2 where they meet. Because in this chapter, we see how faithfulness leads to blessing. And I hope that encourages your spirit. Because a lot of times when we're faithful, we don't see fruit from it right away, right? But the story of Ruth and Boaz, the story of Ruth and Naomi, is that your faithfulness is seen by God, is seen by your world, and it leads to blessing. And what's the blessing? Ruth is faithful because she said, you know what, Naomi, you're a little bit older. I'm going to go into the field, and I'm going to glean the leftover grain. And if you look and study the law, you realize that this is the job of the poor. You own the land, you harvested the land, you have your workers out there, and after they left, Right? They were supposed to leave a little bit so that the poor can come and get a little bit for themselves. 
And so Ruth doesn't just say, you're a God, you're my God, you're people, you're my people. Where do you go? I will go. She actually says, Naomi, you're a little bit older, rest, and I'm going to go with. That's faithfulness. And when she goes there, she works in the land, she's poor, she's vulnerable, but she's doing it. And Boaz notices it. And he notices it and he's impressed. And when he meets her, he impressed and he says, man, I've heard your story. You're a Moabite test. You're from Moabite, and yet you're loving Naomi in this way. You're sacrificed. You're faithful. You're working really, really hard, right? And, and, and so then, as that, he pledges to not only provide and protect, he's like, listen, I don't know about those other fields out there, but as a young woman or as a woman, you're going to be very vulnerable. I want you to stay with my people. I want you to stay in my field. Then he instructs his people and says, like, I want you to let her down a lot. <laughs> and make sure she's taken care of, right? But he provides that. And he says something in chapter 2 that's really fascinating. It plays in chapter 3. He says, I pray, Ruth, for you to not only come in, but you may come under the refuge of the wings of God. That's important for one hundred, right? But he prayed this prayer for her, like, not only may you have physical supplication or physical provision, but you get to a place where you find home. You find refuge, you find peace, you find a resting place under God's wings. And then, the rest of the story, we'll come to chapter 3, is that the bug that happens after that initial meeting with Moab, both Ruth and Naomi recognize that, listen, we're in a good situation, and it's very temporary, right? We don't know this Boaz guy that well. It's good that he's providing for us. But as soon as something happens to him or the harvest season is over, we're still going to go back to what? Being poor, right? Being widows, and being women without a future, without, without any hope, right? And so the darkness is that the present good is temporary, but this tragedy is still looming, right? So the book ends, and now we'll get to chapter 3. So the book ends with a restoration of Naomi's family, as I alluded to. From Naomi and Ruth comes David, Israel's greatest king. And from this same line comes Jesus, the king of So there is light at the end of the story. But what exactly happens in chapter 3? And that's what we're going to try to wrestle with now. Okay? So the story begins with Naomi setting in motion a plan for Ruth to find a home. There's a, there's a sense here of, I think, resting place is probably a, a better uh, a translation or a better translation of that word. But there's a sense that even in the language that she uses in Naomi, there's a sense of, like, I want you to find a place where God has for you. Right? I think this is a grace. This is a grace of an older saint. Looking at the generation before, so in our culture, maybe you work hard to leave something financial for your kids, right? Like, that's kind of what we, 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 we value in our culture. But what Naomi was trying to say, like, I want you to find the place God has for you. I want you to find a place where you don't have to worry about the unknown. I want you to find a place where you can trust that my God has now become your God. I want you to find a home. So she sets about this plan in motion. And the plan is kind of wild, right? Like, we gotta admit that. Like, the plan is, listen, I know you're a widow. I know you're a mobile. I know you're not from these people. I know that the pressing floor is right there and there's going to be people all around you because they're going to be and they're going to be all in line and stuff. But I want you to literally clean up, change your clothes, and I want you to wait till Boaz comes. And what you're going to do is you're going to sit at the bed of the, 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 the table or the end of the bed and you're going to lay on his feet. Right? And then when he comes, you're going to make this proposal for him. Right? And there's so much audaciousness in the story. Right? Like you have all these levels of things you shouldn't do. Right? 
Naomi is just like, listen, you got like his daughter. Like, I don't know how many years I got left. You know, like, he seems to like you and he seems to be fine, so like, you need to go for it, right? And this was wild to me. Is that Ruth doesn't question any of it. He's like, okay, that sounds good, I will do it. And that challenges me. Because there's some people who are further along in the faith, but they give me directions like that. I'm like, are you sure? Like, did God really tell you all this? Like, how come you didn't tell me first? You know, like, but then some of the questions are valid, right? When you get directions, they're kind of tricky sometimes. They're like, are you sure this is what you mean? Do you mean this? But she fully said, Naomi. Because for her, it's like, hey, listen, Naomi has a faith in the God. And she seems to be holding on to the faith in the God. And if this is the plan that she thinks that God wants us to do, I will do it. Right? And, and so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tension here because some people will be like, well, what does it mean to change? Right? And then there's different schools of thought. But some people who said that, like, as a widow, she was mourning, so maybe she's wearing black, and she changed her clothes. Right? Just to signify that, like, hey, Boaz, I am no longer just a widow, I'm available. Like, I would like to enter into the union. Right? Then there's some people who think that, like, it's Sunday best, right? So in my culture, for example, like, on Sunday morning, you don't wear, like, like this whole come as you are is very Western concept, right? He's like, come as you are, God loves you. We're like, yes. But if he's the God of the universe, you also look you back, right? And I don't think either are right or wrong. I just think it's cultural values, right? Like, there's a value of saying God can accept me as I am, right? There's also a value, and there's a sense of point of, like, it's weird that I wear a suit to go to work to look good for those people. But for God, I'm just going to wear whatever I want, right? And that, that's just my culture. Like, that's, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying, like, that's the cultural value, right? You wear your Sunday best, right? And, and so that's some people, that's where they land with this, right? But in all of it, the idea here is that Ruth does something in making this bold, or going along with this bold plan to change her status from just saying, I'm one of the widows, I'm one of your working women, I am actually a suitable companion for you. Right? That's the big shift. Now, Boaz is the end of the harvest, right? They've worked hard for months. They, they, they've been harvesting on Sunday for the celebration, right? And he's out eating and drinking. He's falls asleep, right? And when he wakes up, he struggles. And I always thought this was funny. Because it's like, how, like, tired were you, will say, that you were so not tired you didn't notice anyone in the room, but he wakes up and he's out of sleep. He's like, who are you? What are you doing, right? Not that loud, right? Not that loud story. And, but what's fascinating here is that after Ruth said it's me, Ruth the servant, right? Most theologians, scholars, commentators would agree that Ruth makes the bold request. That it's actually Ruth who proposes to God. That it's Ruth who steps up. And, and so for us, we're like, whoa, 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 that's kind of tricky. Like, I don't understand it. I want to break this down a little bit for us, right? Number one, she's a woman. In a society and culture where she's stripped of all her power and agency, right? She's a woman in a society and culture where the most you can hope for, right, is your fathers or your brothers or your uncles would find you a partner and they would present that partner to you, and the best you can hope for is like you can say yes or no. But we can't ignore that in some of that culture, you didn't have a choice to say yes or no. So the best you can hope for is like. Yeah, he's good enough, right? I'll try. Yeah, I take him, right? That's the best you can hope for. So her agency here is it's kind of amazing that she stepped up in this way. But she's also a widow, which in that culture has a lot of negative connotations because it, it happens in our culture too. Well, maybe not in American culture, but I know in my culture, right? I have a mother who has lost, who's been widowed twice. And so some of the tension she lives with is 
you like, what did you do that your husband died, right? That's completely wrong. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not saying right wrong. That's wrong, right? But that's in our culture, right? And I think that's also close to that culture, too, where it's just like, but what did you do? <laughs> what sin have you done that you can't provide an heir and you can't keep your husband alive? But he's also dealing with that. But then also, it's just a more about it. And for a lot of us, there's a lot of other stuff, right? You have to understand when they left after the Passover, when they crossed the Red Sea, when they were going into the promised land, right? The Moabites were one of the groups of people who had Balaam to try to help them out. In fact, I think it's in the interview in Exodus uh, where, where God basically said, Listen, um, I don't want you to have any relations to the Moabites. Like, I don't want them to even enter into the people of Israel until the 10th generation. That's a lot. That's not your children. That's not your grandchildren. That's not your great grandchildren. Right? I think I counted like seven or eight. Like great, 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 great grandchildren. But that was in the law. Right? So, like, when we say he's an outcast, this is a sworn enemy of Israel, and for ten generations, you're not allowed in here. In fact, the scripture continues on in Exodus to say, like, I don't even want you to work for their shalom. Like, when you came out, instead of bread and water, they send uh, uh, an army after you, and because they, they send that army after you, I don't even want to work for their peace. So needless to say, in the time of Ruth, there's no peaceful relations with Moab and Israel. And as a Moabite, she's a woman, she's an outcast, she has no power, no agency, she's from a tribe or a people who've been saying, Israel wants nothing to do with you. Yet and still, she goes up to Boaz in the middle of the night and says, Marry me. Let me find my home with you. Take off your garment, your, 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 your garment, and cover me as it is a redeemer. And this shows us that Ruth has been listening to Naomi's teaching. Because in the book of Ezekiel, for example, it's God who covers Israel with his cloak. And in the chapter before, in Ruth chapter 2, remember what I said that Boaz prayed? That you may come under the reign of God for refuge? She's like, oh, I heard your prayer, Boaz, but I think that reign of refuge is you. God has chosen you. You may not know it, but God has chosen you to be my home. And so this bold request that she makes is that as God is going to cover Israel, Boaz, I want you to cover me. I want you to make good on that prayer so that I can find my refuge, my resting place in you. Now, in that culture, another thing that's tricky is not just a woman, a widow, or more by it. She's proposing something called leverage marriage, right? What's tricky about that is she's not eligible for it. And that's something we kind of mentioned in the story. So how it was set up and in God's wisdom to try to provide for widows, for example, and in a culture that valued not just having heirs but continuing the family line, if something happened to you as a husband and you died, right? Under that culture, your brother would have to take your wife to provide for her. And that's just how they work. Now, for a lot of us, we're like, that's tricky. I'm not like, my brother, my brother. That's just what they did, right? It's a world we don't know, okay? But it's a world that exists here. But nowhere in the story do we learn that Malon and Achilion are siblings of Boaz. So the boldness in proposing this kind of marriage is basically her going to like, yo, listen, you might be my 15th cousin once removed, but I'm in your family, so you need to do this. Right? Like, that's what she's proposing a marriage that was extended to brothers. 
Now, obviously, in Israel, maybe there were contingencies where you wanted siblings, but again, the whole concept that she's making was a Levite marriage that she wasn't eligible for. Furthermore, as a Moabite, how can you apply Jewish law to you as a Moabite? Which means that at some point, you stop identifying as a Moabite and came under the refuge of Yahweh. And came under the hold of the God of Israel that said, You are my God, so your law that stood now applies to me. And then something fascinating happens to me. Because in this whole story, Boaz has power. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's from the right family. And you see his frailty in his response to this. Because what does he say? He says, Ruth, I want to thank you for showing your kindness towards me. But the word he uses for kindness is special. Right? In the New Testament, you see it sort of a gap. So he's not just saying, you were very nice to me. He's saying, Ruth, in my interactions for you, you have loved me the way Yahweh God has loved me. And I don't know about you, right? I'm a hopeless romantic. Right? Like, that's how I hope God loves me forever. Right? Like, like, the way God loves me. Honey, I know you love me. Take a look. Well, right, like that's what he says to her. He doesn't just say, you're, you're cute or you're pretty, you're beautiful. He says, in all my interactions with you, you have loved me the way God loves me. I think that's beautiful, right? And then you see his penalty because even when he accepts his proposal, he says, listen, I'm old, like, I'm washed up, like, you, you can go after all these other young guys and you choose old, 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 you know? You see his penalty. But then he also acknowledges that, like, I want to enter into this union. But under our law, there's someone who's actually closer in relation to you than me who can claim it, right? But he says, like, I'm going to go and try my best to get this done. I love that this has to end the day when he gets to say, like, oh, no, that man's not going to stop when he gets it done, right? But this sets forth the redemption story that becomes Ruth and Boaz. It becomes Obed, who gives birth, or his wife gives birth to Jesse, whose wife gives birth to David, and has raised him. It becomes part of the redemptive story of our story. Your generations later, from this same royal line, from this same sweetly life, come Jesus Christ, so that Jesus is not the Savior of the world. Right? And, and so they, they, they walk into the unknown, knowing that if I trust what's known, and I love that the trust is all, like, it's all the most they can do. For Ruth, if I'm going to trust Naomi, her plan, her God, then I'm going to believe the promises of her God. But Naomi is like, I'm going to trust that God's going to work this out. I'm not sure how, but we're just going to do this and trust God, right? And for Boaz, says, I'm old. No one, apparently, in my society, my culture wanted me. But this woman who's loved me the way God loves me wants to now be my partner. And I'm going to trust that God is going to bless this when God does. I thought I talking about how midnight and this story is the great unknown, right? Uh, how it's, a, it's an unknown world to us. And we can relate to that because I don't know about you, but I look around our world, or I hear about another shooting, or another civil war, or another policy that's going to affect even more people in my own country, and I mean the United States of America. And I think to myself, I don't know this world I'm in. I don't know where we're going. It feels like this great unknown. But I do know my God. And 
a good trust in my God is good, and my God is working, and my God is merciful, and I can rely on that. And I do know that I have people in my life who in certain areas, in certain uh, uh, whether it's like future or health or, or finances, like I have people who, who've lived life with faith, where God has provided, where God has come through, where God has been merciful. And I know I can recount their stories. I can connect with them. I can see their faith, and that can help push me through. So midnight might be an unknown world around us. It might be unknown to those people close to us. But my sisters and brothers, we can always meet the unknown by knowing our Jesus, by knowing our God, by knowing our God who's there for us. Amen? The unknown is met with faith of the faithful. God's not asking you to know the future. God's not asking you to know exactly how it's going to work out. God is asking you to be faithful. Be faithful now. Let him worry about tomorrow. Be faithful in this. And let him worry about adding, or for some of us, maybe to take off of our plate, right? Just be faithful. That's how you meet the unknown. With faith is by being faithful. The unknown is also met with faith and action. In Exodus, after they leave, right? And when our Passover has happened, and they leave, and everything's going well, right? You know, so they start complaining. They get to the Red Sea, they complain even more. What do they say? They say, like, man, you should have just let us die in Egypt. Like, it's got to be better than drowning in the sea or getting caught between them, right? But something fascinating happens in that story. And as they cry out for Egypt with the fear of the unknown, Moses calls for them to trust in Yahweh, trust in God, right? And he just like, be still, be faithful, be still, trust in God. And you know what God says to them? God says, I need y'all to move. I need y'all to move. And sometimes, with the unknown, when we're paralyzed, we just got to take the first step of faith. God needs you to move. Because if you sit there, you get paralyzed, the feelings become so strong, the hopelessness just keeps drowning you, sometimes you have to take a step of faith. It's only when they heed of God's warning or God's instruction to move, it's only there, right? What happens with that action? God sees their movement, and he instructs Moses to let the readiness of that. To part the sea. They hear God now as he predicts and proclaims their victory. He God, and then in that step of faith, if you remember in the Exodus story, God moves from a cloud in front of them to being beside them. And I love that. I love that in the unknown, God's not saying, I'm leading you by the light, because I'm going to come back here and walk alongside of you. He was still also behind them, right? He's been done in the enemy. But I love that picture. And so God moves from the front to the side and behind them, and they get to know victory. So my sisters and brothers, I don't know what unknown you're facing today. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's health, maybe it's relationship, maybe it's future. I don't know what it is. But I do know you can trust in our God. And I do know our God who has been good will be good to you. A God who has been faithful will be faithful to you. So that's my plea to us this morning, that we're willing to trust in the known God. To take that first step of faith and to know that no matter where he is, he's going to stop being just in front of us. He's going to come alongside of us and walk us through the Red Sea. Amen? We're going to continue our service now by um, closing with communion. Uh, in the next few moments, we'll be staying in communion together. 
Uh, Pastor Patty is going to come up and help me as we celebrate the new life that we have in Jesus. Uh, again, we don't require that you be a member of this church, but we do require that you're a follower of Jesus as pertaining to Scripture as you partake in the bread and the cup. Um, hopefully, as you came in, you were able to grab some of the elements. If you did not, just raise your hand. Uh, we have deacons who are in the back. If you keep your hands raised, they will be able to come up and give you um, um, the instruments that you need. Again, the, the, the table of the Lord is for all who believe uh, and who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. And as we partake, we have a little bit of liturgy that we will be back and forth. We have any claim to heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Please turn to the screens now um, as we start our first responsive reading. Let us join together in the responsive reading for communion this morning, taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are hard pressed on every side. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. Though outwardly we may be wasting away. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary. One way we are renewed is to spare the Lord. In the night of Jesus' betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we thank you so much. For you are indeed the God who works together for our good. Your kindness, your mercy, your compassion is filled in your sending of Jesus for us. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your trust in God, for your trust in the known, that you are willing to go to Calvary's tree, to die for us, to be broken, to be beaten. And in that sacrifice, Lord, we have been healed. In your setting of, or your giving of your life, we have been redeemed. So we take this bread now, remembering that your body was broken for us but also looking forward to when we get to celebrate with you and eternity in heaven at that table. So we come to the table now with grateful hearts for your love, for your mercy, for your grace, for your compassion on us. In your name we pray. My sisters and brothers, this bread with you brings is it not the communion of the body of Christ. Remembering, he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which was Jewish custom, Passover feast. It is called the cup of blessing, and he told his disciples, 
This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's come to Lord, we take this time to remember the setting of your blood. We thank you for this cup that you provide as a symbol of your death and resurrection to us. We ask that you continue to bless us in this time. In your name, My brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink of it together. So at this time, I'd like to invite us to the worship team as we end with our, our final song. Um, again, any of the pastors here, I'd like to welcome you up as well. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're responsible to something in the service. Uh, maybe there's an unknown that's in your life that you're facing. We'd love to pray for you through that. Uh, but also, if you have anything else going on, uh, we'd love to pray for that as well. So please stand out as you sing um, and end our service here.
God, as you know, be the God that leads you to your own. Amen? God bless you all. Have a good week.